0: Uh, before we go ahead and get into uh, the word, uh, pray with me. Uh, and I'm going to pray pretty specific prayer. Um, and my request is that you join in with me. There's not going to be pauses to repeat. Uh, but just in your heart, pray this prayer with me as we, we look to the text. Uh, so let's, let's pray. Father, we know that we need you. Uh, We need your spirit. Uh, We need Jesus. So I pray as we look to your word, that your Holy Spirit uh, would open our ears and would illumine our hearts so that we might meet Jesus and be changed by him. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen. All right, We're going to be preaching today, I'm going to be preaching, uh, from the third chapter in John. Uh, it's a familiar chapter, uh, but bear with me because there are some things in it that I think uh, we need to talk about, especially in light of it being Advent season. And so we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through 21. And while you're turning there, let me just say to you that I love, love, love the book of John. Uh, I love it because John does something that that not only the other Gospels don't do, uh, but something that is so meaningful for me. John teaches about Jesus through uh, showing his interactions with people, Uh, individuals usually, but sometimes smaller groups of people. John tells us he's going to do that in his nativity scene. Uh, John does not have a typical Christmas story, but his nativity scene, his his incarnation verse is tremendous, and and it's not going to be on the screen, but it's in it's in the first chapter. John says, after telling us that the word is God and that everything is created by the word, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld its glory, His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And throughout the rest of John, this is what we see. Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelling among the people and interacting with them with grace and truth. We see it with the woman at the well. Uh, we see it with the woman who's caught in adultery. And Jesus tells them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he interacts with her full of grace and truth. We see it when Lazarus dies and he brings him back. But not only that, in that story, we see him interact with Martha. And he interacts with Martha and speaks truth to her. I told you, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he interacts with Mary and he's gracious. John eleven thirty five he weeps. Jesus wept with Mary. After the resurrection, no other gospel records it except for John. We see him speaking with grace and truth to Thomas who doubts and to Peter who's denied. And he restores them. This is John's gospel. Jesus interacting with the people and, and interacting with them full of grace and truth and, and what we believe about the Bible is that it's alive. And so in the same way that Jesus interacted with them full of grace and truth, as we read His words, as we see His interactions, He is dealing with us with grace and truth. And, and really that's, that's why we read, we tend to teach books of the Bible. And not topically. Because the reality is that the teachings, uh, of the Bible, are real for us and God comes and he meets us in his words by his spirit and he teaches us and he is full of grace and truth and with that in mind we turn to John chapter 3 and we're going to look like I said at verses 1 through 21 We're not going to do what we normally do. I'm not going to have you stand and read the entire text. I'm really just going to move through the text. I'll read a little bit. I'll, I'll shed some light on what's happening. I think it will flow better that way. And also, we are fairly familiar with this story. It contains probably the most famous verse in Christianity, just plain and simple. And so I'm not I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to read it. Uh, we're just going to start in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And let me stop and say this. This is probably connected to the previous verse, the end of chapter 2. Uh, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself, Jesus, knew what was in a man. So John says Jesus knows what makes a man. Jesus knows what's in a man. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And Jesus knew Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't know Jesus, but Jesus knew him. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And it's important for us to know who Nicodemus is. Because we read this story a lot of times, and we say things about this story that just don't make sense if Nicodemus is who John says Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious ruler. Uh, The Pharisees were not merely religious rulers. They were the elite religious rulers. There were only something like 7,000 Pharisees at any given time. When you consider that's in the whole known world, that is not a lot of people. But beyond that, he says that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. And this is speaking of his role in a group called the Sanhedrin. And now we're narrowing it down. We're narrowing it to maybe 15 15 to 20 at any time rulers. And as we know, Israel was under the power of the superpower Rome. But Rome liked to let people have their own power. They let the people rule themselves in so much as they didn't really cause a fuss. Uh, And Israel had a group uh, that was the legislature, the executive and the judicial branch kind of all wrapped into one. And that was the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus was a part of this group. And so what we know is that Nicodemus is a very learned man. uh, He's a very powerful man. So much so that we'll see later, Jesus says that, calls him the teacher of Israel. And there's enough Evidence outside of Scripture, historical evidence, to know that this is is probably a title that Nicodemus holds—the grand professor, the uh, regius professor, the, the head professor of divinity. Nicodemus was the man that people went to to be taught. He was—he was—he was very well versed in the Scriptures. Uh, he was very powerful. Also, we realize later in the book, chapter nineteen, which we'll talk about later, just just a little bit that he was very wealthy. Uh, he purchased all of the dressings and the, and the incense for Jesus' burial, which would have been a very expensive uh, purchase. And he was able to do it. He insisted on doing it. Uh, we know that he probably had a good amount of money. And this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. It says in verse 2. And what we hear a lot of times, and this is what I mean about knowing Nicodemus, is we hear that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night uh, because he was... He was scared of what other people might think. He was a little bit ashamed that he was going to Jesus. And the reality is, as we learn about Nicodemus, he's not a man who's going to back down really from anything. And when he puts his mind to something, he's not one to back down. He takes on the Sanhedrin later in the book. He takes on the Roman government for the body of Jesus later in the book. He's not one who is going to shy away from from being seen and, and making a scene. Uh, other peoples have said that he was a teacher, he knew Jesus was a teacher, and night is the best time to have a long conversation with the teacher. And that may be it. But the reality is that John, in his gospel, loves to use symbol-laden language. He loves symbols. And later in the text, Jesus is going to talk about how men whose deeds are evil, men who are wicked, love the darkness. And what we're going to see about Nicodemus, what Jesus is going to reveal about Nicodemus, is that he is living in, he is acting in a darkness that is deeper than even he knows. And this is important for us. And so Nicodemus comes to him at night. For whatever reason, John pens it because of the dark factor, the darkness factor. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he says to him in verse 2, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers him. Okay, so Nicodemus basically says, Rabbi, you come from God. And Jesus' response is this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, typically, uh, if a member of the youth group, if Conlin Fennerty comes up to me and says, "Hey, Sean, I know that um, God has really been using you to teach the youth," my response would not be, "Well, you know, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto you. it might be." Thank you. Or, but this response is—it's uh, weird. It really is. And there, there are a lot of theories about why Jesus makes this response, but, but we'll just cut to what, what I believe is happening in the text. I believe that Jesus knows what is in a man. And when Nicodemus comes to him with with this statement, when Nicodemus says, Rabbi, I know that you are a teacher sent from God. No one can do what you're doing unless God is with him. Jesus knows Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were people who longed for the kingdom of God to come back. And when they mean kingdom of God, what they mean is the Davidic dynasty. David's rule, the power of Israel, the nation of Israel to come back. And they know that a Messiah is going to do it. This Messiah will be sent from God and he will be powerful. And what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus is we see the things that you are doing come from God. We see the things that are happening could not happen unless you have God's power. And inherent in power is reign, God's kingdom, king dominion. Power. And Jesus sees that, that Nicodemus is saying that. And what Jesus says is, you don't see anything. You see miracles. You see water turned to wine. You see actions. You see me cleansing the temple. But unless you are born again, you cannot be a part of, and therefore you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Here's where you need to again remember who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is among the most learned people in Israel. He's a teacher in an Eastern culture. I find it very hard to believe that Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is actually saying, you must go back into your mother's stomach and be born again to see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus is a lot of things. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying fully, uh, but he is not a simple man. He knows there is metaphor. He realizes what Jesus is saying. He comes to Jesus saying, are you the one who's bringing the kingdom? I, I intuit that you are. I've seen what you've done. You're coming to bring the kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know anything unless you're born again. And for, for Nicodemus, what he's hearing is, I'm not coming to just bring a kingdom. To bring a new rule for Israel. I'm not here to bring new rain. To bring heaven on earth right now. What I'm here to do is make new people. You need to be born again. You need to start afresh. Start anew. And Nicodemus says this is impossible. What you're saying. Restore a kingdom? Yeah, we can do that. Make new people? Start over? How do you make new people? And for us as Christians, those of us who are, this is a question that we wrestle with. How can I be a new person? We think about all the things that we've done in the past. Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Deceit. The things that we've done when nobody is looking. The things that we've done and have been found out about us. We start to think about who we are. Alfred Lord Tennyson has a, has a poem. Uh, he says, Oh that a man would arise in me that the man I am would no longer be. John Clare, a poet, has a poem, uh, and he says, If life has a second edition, oh, how I will edit the copies. But it can't be done. You get one life. Everyone is struggling with this. Nicodemus is struggling with this. You want new people? We just want a kingdom. People? Really? Really? And Jesus answers him a second time. And Jesus slightly switches it up. He says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says it again to him. But he says it differently. And, and a lot of people will teach that being born of water is to be physically born the water breaks, and you come out. You're born of water. And then to be born of the Spirit is the spiritual birth. And, and, and so you hear, based on this text, let me tell you that that's true. But you hear, based on this text, that that means that it, to get into heaven, you need to have a physical birth, which we all have, and then you need to have a spiritual birth. And that's not really what, what Jesus is saying here. We're all born. Jesus isn't telling him, you need to be born once. Nicodemus has been born. He understands that that now is not a necessity he can change. Jesus is also not saying, you need to be born of water, and is referring in some way to the Christian baptism. That's really not what's happening here either, mostly because Christian baptism hasn't been established yet. And also because later on Jesus scolds Nicodemus for not understanding what he is saying. So on what basis, if born of water never described physical birth in the ancient Near East, and if Christian baptism has not been established yet, on what basis is Jesus expecting that Nicodemus know what he's talking about? And expecting that you, know what he's talking about. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. If anyone knows Scripture, if anyone knows the Old Testament, it's a Pharisee. And if you've heard me preach at all, (laughs) you have to know that it doesn't matter where we are in the Bible. It can be the New Testament. It's going back to the Old Testament at some point. Uh, The youth can tell you that. I'm not sure when the last time we actually just taught out of the New Testament was. um, But it's going back to the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, If you look in the Old Testament for the phrase born again, you're not going to find it. Uh, But if you look for water and spirit coming together, uh, you'd be surprised to find that this has been mentioned before uh, in Ezekiel. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Because in Ezekiel, what's happened is God has said that there, my people are scattered throughout the nations because of their sin. But I'm going to restore my nation. And then, or as well, and look at verse uh, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will wash you with water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel, through God, is predicting a time when the Messiah will come and not only will there be a new, full, renewed kingdom, we will have new people. God's people will be made new. They will be born of water which cleanses them and of spirit which leads them and guides them and gives them power. And Jesus expects that Nicodemus should know this, but because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's looking for David's rule, and he's not thinking about people being made new. He's not thinking about himself needing to be reborn. And Jesus says, after saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you're born of water and spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the same thing. He says it again. And then he goes even further back in John. uh, And he says, do not marvel to you that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And isn't that what Ezekiel was saying? God's going to give his spirit to his people and his spirit is going to guide them. They're going to walk in his ways. They're going to follow his statutes. This is not natural for the people of Israel. There is a whole history in the Old Testament of people fighting God, fighting God, fighting God because of sin. There's a whole history in our lives of us fighting God, fighting God, fighting God because of sin. And that God performs a miracle. He makes us new. He gives us His Spirit. Just like the miracle in Genesis. Where He blows into dirt and it becomes alive. God makes us new. People. We start over. We have new life. And at this point, Nicodemus isn't quite so... Pompous, so know it all with his responses. Uh, there is a significant shift in tone because I kind of get the feeling that in the beginning Nicodemus is, We know that you are a teacher from God, we know. <laughs> you know, and born again? Can I go back in my mom's womb? You know, you know like there's this air where Jesus is, Nicodemus has come to Jesus. And is holding Jesus in judgment. He's there to judge and test who Jesus is. And we like to do that. We like to judge God based on our ideals of love. This is a postmodern ethic. This is how I define love. God is love. Therefore, God must be this. And we'll talk about that later. This is the Jesus I like. I like the Jesus who loves everybody. And who's skipping arm in arm down the yellow brick road with Gandhi and Buddha and Muhammad. And that's not the Jesus we get. You do not stand in judgment of Jesus. Jesus stands in judgment of you. And Nicodemus, he's starting to realize that. I, I imagine his tone changing and he says to him, How can these be? How can these things be? And Jesus answered him. And you still see Jesus kind of prodding at the pretensions of Nicodemus, kind of just still nudging him a little bit. Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? You don't know the scriptures? And you teach? You are the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, and and for me, this is kind of divine humor this is jesus cracking a joke because remember nicodemus comes to him and says we have we have figured out that you are a teacher sent from god and we we know that no one can do what you do unless god is with them we do and then jesus says we speak of what we know we do you know (laughs) like you came with your pretenses you have no idea who i am you are the, the teacher of Israel, I'm God. That means I know more than you. And I know about the right things. Don't, don't think that Jesus is being petty here. Jesus, again, is just bringing Nicodemus to that place. This is what he does with us. He brings him to that place. I have to do this with Hazel. Hazel is throwing a fit. Hazel thinks she knows what's better. She knows that it's better that she have all of her building blocks in her bed before she goes to sleep at night, because that will coax her into a deep sleep. And she is willing to yell at me. I mean, I I won't even yell at scream at me, banshee at me, (laughs) to prove it. And I have to stop her, and I have to sit her. I have to get right in her face. I have to say, hold it. You're Hazel. I'm Daddy. You don't know. You're two. (laughs) I'm considerably older than that. You don't know. But I know. Finally, she'll calm down sometimes. We're going on a good night here. She'll calm down. I can put her in bed. And she gets the rest that she needs. And that's what Jesus is doing right here to Nicodemus. It's what he does to us invariably is he brings us down and he says, you think you're a teacher. You think you're holy. You think you know what's going to happen. Oh, you went to Sunday school. Oh, you have a PhD. I'm God. Listen. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I had told you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, and that's what he's telling him. Earthly things. How do you go about getting into the kingdom of heaven now on earth? How are you made new now on earth? This is not the order. Kingdom of God comes, then you are made new. It is you are made new, you see the coming kingdom of God and participate in it as it comes in its fullness. I'm talking about earthly things and you do not receive our testimony. My testimony, if I've told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can you believe if I tell you I'm God and I'm going to rule on the earth? My kingdom is coming and everything will be made right and I will rule. I am God. We are not talking about more men leading this dynasty. We are talking about God himself in flesh, on the throne, ruling. How can you understand that? Why even look at Daniel and and Revelation? Why even think about heaven? If you don't know who Jesus is, if you're not born again, if you don't understand how to be made new. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's also the title spoken of, the one who comes, the Messiah who comes in Ezekiel. We see it in Daniel, we see it in Psalms, we see it a lot. But specifically in Ezekiel 36, the Son of Man is the Messiah who's coming to do these things. And Jesus is saying... You saw. You said facts, but you don't know. You don't know. He just gives them a little bit of heavenly. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up. What? I would ask you to raise your hands, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to just in your own head. Do you know what Jesus is talking about here? If the answer is no, I'm going to tell you right now, you need to read your Bible. And you don't need to just read the comfortable New Testament passages. You need to read the long, clunky, unwieldy Old Testament passages because Jesus is there. In the New Testament, they're taking that Jesus and saying, see? And you can't see unless you know God's word. Nicodemus did. This is easy for Nicodemus. Nicodemus' head goes, numbers 21, which we're going to look at. And I realize that what happens in numbers 21, because for me, I, I enjoy covenant theology. I'm reformed. I love biblical theology, the technical term. We all love biblical theology, theology based in the Bible. But I mean specifically that which is known as biblical theology. Seeing the types of Jesus, seeing the storyline connect from Adam to David to Jesus. I love that. But here's one that you would never say. The serpent is Jesus. Because even if you don't know your Old Testament, you do know this, serpent, bad, <laughs> Jesus, good. And Jesus is saying, just like the serpent was lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up. In Numbers 21, here's what's happening. The people of, Iz- of Israel are grumbling against Moses and God who have delivered him from Egypt again. And they're saying, why did you take us out of Egypt? We had houses, we had food, we were enslaved, but that doesn't matter. We had the things that we thought comfortable. Why did you deliver us, God? Why did you save your people? And I want to say it like that so you can see how ridiculous this is. Why have you been a great God who has delivered us from the evil one and is leading us to the promised land? How could you? And God's like, you know what? I can't deal with these people. And so he raises up snakes from the ground. And the snakes, uh, serpents from the ground, bite the people of Israel. And they are poisoned and start dying. And so they have disobeyed God. They have not believed in God. They have sinned against God. They have been punished and they are currently sick and dying. There is a death sentence. There is no escape from what will happen. Venom from a snake will kill you if things progress naturally. Fortunately, we serve a supernatural God. And God says to Moses in verse 8, and we'll look at verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. What? And everyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall live. Or in other words, I'm going to heal you, but I'm going to do it so that you realize it's me. But what Moses does, he makes a serpent, fiery serpent, sticks it on a pole, sticks it on a stick, and lifts it up. And here we have a serpent hanging from a stick, and when the people see this, they are healed. And Jesus is saying, so the Son of Man will be hung on a stick, be lifted up, take the sin of the people, he who knew no sin will be made sin, will become the serpent, so that you might become the righteousness of God. He will be lifted up, and to be born again is simply to believe and gaze upon the Son of Man hanging on a stick. Jesus is predicting the salvation of the world. And it comes when He is lifted up on the cross. And then He says that whoever believes in Him and looks up, because that was how you showed that you believed in Moses' story, and looks up, whoever believes and looks up may have eternal life. Alright, and so here is what we've got so far. Because we're about to get into, the, we're about to get it. It's, it's awesome. We have a people who do not believe the God who has saved them. We have a people who just don't know God. We have Nicodemus who knows the Bible, but doesn't know God. We have us who live dying and sick. We have sinned against God and we have received the punishment, death or sickness unto death. And now Jesus is saying, you, those people, God has sent me to be lifted on the cross to become the serpent for you so that you can have life. And here is, here is the amazing thing. There are two healings that are happening. In Numbers 21. The first is that God is healing them by forgiving them of their iniquities. And secondly, God is healing them by removing the power, the venom of sin, which leads to death from them. God is healing them from the power of sin. And he is forgiving their sins. And when we teach... About this verse, when we teach John 3, we only talk about so that you can get into heaven, so you can be forgiven. But what Jesus is saying here is that so you can have eternal life, and that life begins when you are born again. You are forgiven, but you are healed. You are healed from the sicknesses caused by your sins, and you are healed from the sicknesses caused by the sins of others. How many of you have been sinned again? All of you. All of us. Barna can prove that. One out of three. 33% of all women will be sexually molested. Have been sexually molested. One out of three. Look around. One out of three. One out of two American homes end in divorce. And a lot of those homes have children. And those children have been hurt. Someone has lied to you. You have trusted that someone was going to be there and they weren't. You thought that your, your parent or your hero would not die and they did. We have committed sins and we've, we've been sinned against. And what Jesus is saying is you can be healed of both. Because you cannot live until you are healed of both. Until you stop living in bitterness and sorrow and self-pity. Until you stop living in darkness and in sin. Until you are born again. And I am going to do that. God is going to do that. He who knew no sin will be made sin so that you might live. And the question, the question is why? God had every right to send those serpents. God has every right. Jesus had every right to say, Nicodemus, man, you just don't get it. Get out of here. Stop coming at me with that arrogant, pious, pharisaical nonsense. Just leave. But he acts out of grace and truth like John says. Why? And that's found in verse 16. God loves you. God loves you this isn't, we have this idea of God that like this is his duty. Like God is like a a grandfather who, oh, I see no wrong in little Hazel. I'm going to shower her with love and gifts. You know, or like God is like Melissa and I in in college where I looked at Melissa and everything sparkled all the time. Not like Twilight. (laughs) You know, I looked at her and she'd look at me and, our eyes would be aglow. Our faces would be a glow. I love you. Fragrance from your hair. The sweet sound of your laughter. Your unending beauty. I, I love it. Fast forward seven years. I'm lying next to Melissa in bed. She turns to me. You stink. but I love you. You stink, but I love you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what God is saying. You are people who hate me. You turn away from me. You stink. You are terrible people who hate me. Even though I have made you, you run away from me. Even though I bring light to you, you hide in the darkness. You curse my name by how you live. You hate me. But I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to become like you. I'm going to die for you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. It goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This makes sense now. Because that's what he He should have done. That's what we deserved. What we deserved was God coming in flesh to start judging people. Boom, sickness. Boom, death. I'm done. But what we have is God coming into the world. The son of God coming into the world. Not to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you believe in Jesus? Know what I'm asking you. I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm not asking if when the census comes, you check the Christian box. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church your whole life. I'm not asking you if you know Bible verses or if you do good things asking you, have you looked at Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you living a new life by His Spirit? Because this is judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness like Nicodemus did. He came in the darkness. He didn't realize it, but he was setting up a really cool image of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus knew though. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I'm going to ask you again. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know that God loves you? And that he wants to call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Really, the question I'm asking is, are you living in the light? Are you living in light? It can be shortened even to just, are you living? Do you believe in Jesus, right now, I'm going to uh, ask maybe for you to search uh, your hearts. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing any sort of altar thing, but I want you for a moment to just search your heart. So, so bow your head, close your eyes, consider the love of God for you. Consider Jesus' love for you. Our God gives out of his great love. We light the love candle on Advent because we realize that this, this coming of Jesus is a gift of love. And our response is to believe in him and to believe that he is Lord. So I'm going to ask you now to publicly respond. Do you believe? But in responding, here, here's what we're going to do. As a church body, we are going to audibly confess Jesus is Lord. And and I will start. And as you feel led, as you feel called, confess with us. Don't worry about speaking over other people. Don't worry about how loud you're saying it. But confess aloud right now. I confess Jesus Christ. Is Lord Hallelujah and Amen.